Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and today's interview is with Andrew Harvey, who is a junior fellow at the Research Institute for Languages and Cultures of Asia and Africa at Tokyo University of Foreign Studies. He completed a bachelor's degree at Memorial University of Newfoundland, Canada, a master's degree at the University of Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and a PhD at SOAS, University of London. He has conducted work on both the Gorwa and Ihanzu languages and has received funding for projects through the Endangered Languages Documentation Program, as well as the Firebird Foundation for Anthropological Research. The title of his currently funded research is An Initial Description of Ihanzu, a Bantu language of the Tanzanian Rift Valley area. His interests include the languages of the Tanzanian Rift, their documentation and description, their formal morphosyntax, and the histories and cultures of their speaker communities. I'd like to welcome Andrew Harvey onto the podcast. Thank you for making time, Andrew. Well, thank you for uh, having me. Oh, you're welcome. So to start, how did you start working in the Tanzanian Rift Valley? So I guess probably the best place to start is in 2011 when I was doing a master's degree in linguistics at the University of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. So as a bit of a background, Tanzania is home to say around 120 languages and uh, many of my classmates, my Tanzanian classmates, could not only speak English and Swahili but one or more of what they would call the local languages. So During that year, we spent lots of our time working with and thinking about these languages, how they were structured, how they were similar, how they were different. And so when the time came to go off on fieldwork for our dissertations, most of my classmates went back to their home communities and worked with their grandparents or their aunts and uncles. So I'm Canadian, so for me, there was no Tanzanian home community to go back to, though I knew I wanted to do something documentation and description focused, but I didn't have any connection to a local language or language community. So I sat down with one of my mentors, it's named uh, Dr. Joseph Atruga Malira, and he, what he did was he gave me a bibliography of Tanzanian languages and told me to make a list of the ones that had nothing written about them. And this actually, it produced a relatively long list because the, what did I say, 120 uh, languages spoken, most are either undescribed or underdescribed. So I came back to Dr. Ruge Malira with this list and he told me that he thought I should do Gorwa. And the problem was at that time that nobody we knew had any connections in that part of the country. So the best I could do was get on uh, a bus uh, in Dar es Salaam at around five in the morning, uh, travel up country for about 13 hours and get off in a town called Babati. And I remember being advised by my seatmate to get a guest house before it got too dark because Babati wasn't, in his opinion, a good place to be outside during the night. And, you know, he was right. So after getting to Babati and finding a guest house, I uh, proceeded to get ill for about 10 days. And I was in this small guest house in Babati. And uh, because Babati is up country, and I guess just the time of year that it was, it gets very, very cold at night. And I remember being in this, in this room 
with, you know, no glass on the windows, just these bars. And it was, the floor was made out of, uh, was made out of concrete. And uh, these, these blankets that were probably a little bit too thin. And I remember kind of being miserable. And I said, you know, I'm like, my friends are already out there, you know, getting great data with their BBs, their, their grandmothers and their, and their babus, their grandparents. And here I am like in Babati, I'm ill, you know, I can't get out. I still don't know anybody. I don't even know what the language sounds like. So it's like, what do, where do I go? And so at the end of 10 days, I kind of, I started feeling better. I was eating a little bit better. So I kind of emerged from my room, you know, I was kind of pale and, you know, not looking that great, but luckily it was the day of the cattle auction when everybody around gets together and they all go to this big sort of open area that once a month is filled with people selling plastic shoes and rubber boots and and uh, spades and like and blankets and, and pots and things and of course uh, auctioning off the cattle so lots of different animals and goats and sheep and cows so I, I I went and I was probably the only white person there and of course I drew a little bit of a crowd as a bit of a curiosity I suppose and people were saying well what are you doing here and I said well I'm a linguist and I am doing research on this language and they said well you should go over there and speak to those guys so I kind of walked across the auction ground and I met a guy called Andrea and Andrea is still my good friend he took me around probably the the following two weeks he took me around all around the Gorwa speaking area you know, I did some of my first interviews, you know, all out of the goodness and of, of his heart and, you know, his, uh, you know, it was all sort of charity on his part, but he clearly wanted to help me. He's a Gorwa speaker and he, and he thought that it was, you know, it was worthwhile work or at least that it was interesting. It was something to, to do. And uh, sort of at the end of those two weeks, he introduced me to the people that I would end up living with for, well, basically anytime I'm in the field, I, I, I still live with them. So uh, an older couple and uh, yeah. And that's uh, that's basically step by step. It was all sort of serendipitous how I got involved. Yeah. Yeah. That is so essential to, I, f- I feel like you just need to meet like one person if they're the right person and they can completely open the community up to you and vouch for you if they have the connections to speakers. Mm-hmm. I have a couple a couple speakers like that who they're they're both retired, but they're just interested in like taking me around to other people's houses they tell me like, okay, today we're going to go to this person's house and listen to them. And then after that, you have a meeting with like this other grandma over here. I would be lost without them. Yeah, it's a community. And I mean, that's how that's how they're put together, right? You kind of start at start at one point and, uh, and you know, you eventually get around, you spend time with people and, and yeah, you kind of get a rough idea. I mean, you kind of have to leave it to community members themselves because mm-hmm. I mean they know they know the lay of the land they know who would be useful to work with they would they would know people who have time they would know you know the things that you can talk about not everything but I think that you know you have to use your you have to use your own uh, intuition as a, as a field linguist for certain things but I mean in a lot of cases I mean you know these people are sensitive to things that we wouldn't be right and they can point out the things that they would find interesting the things that we probably would find interesting mm-hmm. as well if we looked at them enough, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So when you were with your host family, you you paid for your room and board by helping out around the the house, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I I saw your like kind of daily schedule, and I thought, oh man, that's like quite tight. Um, did you feel like it was a lot to kind of be doing all those chores, and then also like on top of that, you have the job of doing your project? 
Yeah, I think my style of field linguistics, I've been I've been told is very sort of intense and all encompassing. And that doesn't make it any better or worse than anybody else's way of doing field work or field linguistics. You know, I think it's a question of what do you feel comfortable doing? What's the balance that's healthy for you? And, you know, what feels right and what feels appropriate in the place that you're working. You know, you can read hundreds of books about this stuff, but like really what it comes down to is sitting down as a person and saying, okay, like what can I do? What works? For me, I like the diversity. I like the ability of getting up in the morning, sort of going out and taking the taking the cows out a little bit into the yard. And, you know, you just stand up and the sun was coming up and you just listen to them. And then, you know, afterwards, you'd sort of go back once once the solar panel was was doing its thing and charged up. Yeah, charged up and, you know, you'd, you'd be able to use your computer inside. And then you could sort of sit down in the, in, in the shadow for a little while and, and work on your recordings and, and then in the evening, you know, you could just sort of sit down and listen with your recording device and, and, you know, ask questions. So there was a lot of variety to it. And I think that that's that kept me refreshed. But at the same time, you know, I understand and I respect this uh, this wisdom that it's it's important to give yourself you time as well. I think that, you know, that's that's healthy. In some cases, you can't do that. Or in some cases, maybe you just feel like you want to really go into it head head first, right? Take this just do it perspective. But I think that you have to be you have to be reflexive about it. You have to look about and you have to be sort of in tune with how you're feeling. How do I feel about this? Do I feel like this is a sustainable pace? I'm feeling this way or I'm feeling run down or I'm feeling really energized. Where does that come from? You know, and we, we need to pay attention to ourselves because that's your most important piece of field equipment. Yeah, that's so true. I have such a hard time saying no to people when I'm on field work. I feel I feel really, really bad and really guilty if somebody asks me to do something or go to something and I can't do it. So yeah, I definitely need to... This last field trip, I, I did kind of try to set boundaries a bit more. But yeah, no, that's really good advice to try to check in with yourself and not not burn yourself out too much. Yeah, because I, I think that I think now and I think especially for people who are sort of just starting off, I think that they feel like they have to prove a lot or yeah, they have a lot to prove. And they feel like, you know, especially to get funding, you know, they need to be this, this uh, elicitation or this data collection machine and go out and collect thousands of words or go out and collect hundreds of hours of material. And I can understand where that feeling comes from. And I can sympathize with that. But really, nobody knows Nobody knows the intricacies and nobody knows sort of the eccentricities or the idiosyncrasies of, of your field situation. So you really need to assess like how much material can you realistically and healthily get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's so true. Can you talk about your main research interests um, in Gorwa and now you're working in Ihanzu? So basically, I'm interested in the languages of the Tanzanian Rift. It's an area of around, say, 13 uh, different languages, varieties of languages. And basically, I'm, I'm interested in their documentation and description, their formal morphosyntax, and the histories and cultures of their speaker communities, especially uh, that we can observe through things like linguistic arts and language contact. So in practice, that means a lot of my work and my methods are eclectic. So one day I may be using like software to analyze Ihanzu nominal tonology. The next day I might be drawing 
phrase structure trees to account for Gorwa word order. The next day I might be curating an archive of recordings and videos I've made of, you know, songs, stories, rituals, things like that. So there's a lot of different stuff and it's, you know, it's very rich and varied and, and that keeps it interesting and really stimulating. I mean, there's a lot there to unpack. And it's mostly, it's very community-based as well, right? Like you're you're heavily collaborating with the community for them to be the ones who are collecting the data and deciding what what's important and what should be gathered, right? Yeah, so I think I like to see my involvement with the communities in which I work as sort of ideally this gradual transfer of the research agenda from the linguist to the speaker community. So for example, when I began work with speakers of Gorwa, the research agenda was virtually entirely in my hands. So I decided what the research questions were. I decided how I was going to explore the language and discover the answers. I decided how I wanted to communicate the results. And, you know, several years back and, and fairly early into research for my doctoral dissertation, I came back to the field uh, working with Gorwa again. And by virtue of the requirements of the academic degree, I had the research questions and the medium in which these answers would be communicated, so a dissertation, but there was a lot more flexibility regarding answering these questions. So for this part of the research, I took some time to talk with community members, uh, and conversations commonly went something like, you know, I have these questions and I want to write a book about the results. How would you like me to go about looking for the answers? And, you know, out of this came this idea of a community steering committee. And so we met once a month and we listened to the kind of recordings I'd been making. And, you know, they suggested further things I could record and people I could speak with. And so this resulted in, you know, a collection of recordings from around 150 different Gorwa speakers from different villages and different ages and different walks of life. We had genres, including songs and divining rituals and dance. And so like sort of in short, like a vastly richer and more interesting corpus than would have been possible with my own personal knowledge, creativity, and, and, you know, and ability alone. So today, kind of eight years from when the project started, uh, we're coming to the end of a 12-month project in which four Gorwa local researchers, under the direction of the steering committee, have collected over 200 hours of uh, Gorwa audiovisual material, ranging from stories, local histories, discussions of traditional justice systems. So basically what I did was I went uh, back to uh, the field site and worked with uh, four young Gorwa speakers, and we kind of worked together learning how to use handy cams and learning how to use audio recording devices, setting up tripods, uh, recording metadata, and sort of after maybe two months of a lot of sort of practical training, going and showing them how I would do it, and uh, seeing what the results were and showing them how to put all the material together into the computer, they went out and they became the researchers. Yeah, so so this stuff not only now has it produced recordings and videos of a quality that's essentially indistinguishable from mine, I think more importantly, the content of the recordings is more in-depth and rooted in the local culture than like anything I could have produced, right? Like, so we have we have a lot of stuff, like they're more in tune to these, to these cultural cues. When somebody mentions a name, well, they can ask follow-up questions, right? Yeah. It probably makes more sense to have Gora people asking these questions and conducting these interviews because, you know, they'll understand much more about like what's going on and, and, and the dynamics of the conversation. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot more subtle stuff going on there. Like you said, it's good to have the community members interview the the community members if you can and if you have people who are interested. 
I have a terrible habit of just saying yes when I don't know what is happening. I I would generally just smile sort of stupidly. I mean, like, you know, now my Gorwa is much is much better, is much more fluent, so I can you know, I can basically follow along a conversation. And you know, I can I can speak a little bit and ask some questions and things. But I mean at, yeah, I think it just makes sense to uh, to rely on the uh, on the skills and of, of other people. And I mean they're interested in their own uh, in their own cultures. So a lot of this part of the research was not really giving much direction, just kind of being like, I know that each of you are have your different interests and you have different networks, so why don't we follow those as far as we possibly can. So they all have their own sort of, you know, the four Gorwa local researchers, they have their own uh, sort of research uh, interests. And, and you know, they, they come together once a week or so, and they sit down and they talk about what, what they recorded, they talk about the differences, uh, they talk about how they can improve on it. So it's become sort of a real little community and community of practice, right? And, 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 and that's great, I think. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how the the goals of the community or the agenda of the community might be different from, from yours. Uh, I think you said something really relevant about how, you know, we need to check our, our bias when we go into a, a community where we're an outsider and what, w- what we might think is important might necess- not necessarily be the same dreams and aspirations of the community members. And that's something we should check out the door. So, yeah. So, so, I have, I would have sort of my goals. I mean, you know, uh, a lot of my time I do, you know, I'm interested in description, interested in things like morphosyntax, but this is, these interests are, I would say almost completely divorced from the interests of the Gorwa community, you know, so, uh, so this differs, you know, build, building these relationships uh, with your community members, you need to understand that they have probably have very different goals and and desires from, from you. So, and really, and like the only way to mitigate that is to take the time and kind of have those open, sincere discussions with the people to you, with the people close to you in the community. So for example, and you know, this is probably familiar to uh, other linguists working on the African continent are your community champions really viscerally interested in spearheading an activist campaign to revitalize their endangered language? Or are they really more interested in learning how to use a computer so they can one day start a business editing photos and creating music playlists? And so only once we understand and respect each other's motivations, can we really start to work with each other rather than one person working for the other? Yeah. Yeah, well said. Quickly veering off and going back to research methods, Kate Lindsay on Twitter brought up a question about indigenous data collection methods. And she gave the example of training 12 year olds in the community on how to use the video camera and take it out on their own to collect a corpus of jokes. Do you have any like, little like, training methods like that, where you were able to get some interesting data by utilizing the skills of the community or anything else like that? Yeah, I think that that's a good example. I mean, I think in the case of Lindsay, it seems to have resulted in a very specific sort of data. I think that including making sure that you're paying attention to paying attention to the different elements that exist within a community and, and focusing on that diversity in the people that you trained to go out and collect the data. So, you know, that makes a big difference to the types of um, material that you collect and that is 
is eventually uh, makes its way into your corpus, right? So we, I trained um, I trained a woman researcher, which was kind of it, and still is sort of out of the norm. Generally, I mean, in, in Gorwa society, women, you know, they're the ones who look after the home, which is already a massive task. And it takes an awful lot of energy and, and an awful lot of uh, skill and ability, I think, to look after a home. But I, I asked a, a woman that I'd known if she would like to go and do some uh, research, you know, if she would like to be part of the research team and be employed for a year or so collecting uh, material. So uh, we sort of welcomed her into the team and we gave her the training and uh, and, and gave her salary for around a year or so. And, you know, um, some of the material that, that she collected is entirely different from the stuff that the guys or, you know, I would be able to collect. Uh, while we were out getting stories from men, uh, she was uh, often going to, you know, her neighbors and asking, you know, oh, you know, that time that so-and-so was sick, like, how did you look after them? Or do you remember when when I was born? Like, do you remember how, how that delivery went? Or, you know, how do you cook this? How do you cook this leaf from this species of tree when there's a drought and all of your other, uh, all of your other crops fail? You know, how do you harvest it? How do you turn this, which we wouldn't think of as food, into food? And so you're getting a whole other, you know, you're getting a whole other sort of side to a lot of the commonly accepted stories and histories, but you're also getting a whole other set of skills and uh, and knowledges and ways of looking at the world. Yeah, and, uh, and so I think that that's just one example of uh, how building diversity into your team could really go a long way. I think one of my big um, one of my big regrets is I've still uh, sort of failed to engage Muslim Gorwa speakers. And there is a small, uh, there's a minority of of Muslim uh, Gorwa. The majority are Christian, but I just feel like if I could eventually get to the point where I could work with a uh, a Gorwa local researcher that was Muslim, I think that um, again we would see. So much interesting stuff coming out of there from a whole other sphere of uh, of the culture and a whole other a whole other you know sort of network of connections and individuals that as of right now I just uh, I haven't been able to uh, access. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone about to go into the field for the first time? So I've I've said this everywhere, and I hope it doesn't come across as like as trite. But like when it when it all comes down to it, I think that the most important thing to remember is that. Our role as a linguist has to come second to our role as a human being. So as much as successful field linguistics is about formulating the perfect elicitation questions, finding the ideal consultants, keeping tabs on all the research data, you know, the whole sort of enterprise is meaningless if we've come away without having felt something. You know, we have this amazing, amazing privilege of being given this access to a community, and it might be our own, like if you're a local researcher going out, or it might be one that's very different uh, from the one in which you grew up, you know, and we have that privilege of of sitting down and, and talking to other people about it and learning about it and, uh, you know, learning about this conduit for culture and history and uh, and self-expression, which is language, right? So even if the budgets are tight and you're expected to to do a lot, you know, your timelines are compressed and the expectations for your corpus word counts are high. You know, really nothing is more important than developing with our communities these relationships of trust and friendship and like generally shared humanity. I think that's like, that's the advice that I give somebody. Yeah. 
Lastly, Andrew, can you tell our listeners where they can learn more about your work? If they want to read things about Gorwa or Ihanzu, where can they do that? Probably the best place right now is my personal website. Uh, so I guess you can just list that in the show notes, which is fine. Yeah, I'll link that. Yeah. And uh, I've, I've just started off on Twitter and I always want to meet new friends, especially ones that can teach me things. So uh, I would love to get some recommendations of, of people that I can learn from. Uh, so I am on Twitter. And yeah, people can just send me an email as well. I love to chat with people. Cool. What's your Twitter handle? It's at Andrew DT Harvey. Okay, and I'll link that as well, and uh, your email. Shall I, shall I link your email as well? Yeah, sure, link my email, that's no problem. Okay, I'll, I'll link everything. Okay, link it, link it all. Awesome, thank you so much, Andrew. No worries, thank you. You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui Billens, with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco, and our logo is by Evil Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lingfieldnotes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple Podcast review. Thanks for listening.